Welcome to your weekly dose of comedy with your host, Dana Pereira. Where's our participation trophy? Hey guys, welcome back to Display Case. I'm Dana Pereira, and today we have a household name, it seems like maybe overnight, Carol Baskin. So nice to be here, Dana. I'm so excited that you came on the show. Um, I hear that you have a birthday coming up soon. A birthday, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a big one. Do you have any big plans? Yeah, it's my 60th birthday, and I was going to exploit it to promote a film, and it turns out the film is probably going to have like a big production in person in D.C., So, uh, and it's not on my birthday, so I'm going to do something new now. Well, maybe you can get people to, you know, donate to your rescue or check out the gazillion things that you have going on. You are a very, very, very busy woman. Yeah, there's <laughs> there is never a dull moment around here. <laughs> so your husband, is he a good gift giver? He is. He is. I, I'm one of those people that I don't really like to get gifts. I'm, I'm happy with things that are very functional. And so like the best gift he has ever gotten me was one of these lamps that goes on your desk, but it's like this arm. You can move it all over the place. I love that thing. <laughs> <laughs> and I assume um, that Christmas time and birthdays and stuff like that, family and friends, do you ever get something that doesn't have a cat on it? Hardly ever, you know, with that lamp, it did not have any cat print on it, but it would probably not have been so functional if it did. Yeah. Do you ever just think like, gosh, people, could you, I like black too. You could just get me something that's black. I recently had to go undercover for some stuff that we were doing, and I went through my entire closet like three times before I could find enough gear that I could dress for two days that didn't have cat print. That's so funny. Um, so the Netflix special, I know that you've done some other things before that, right? You had a couple of documentaries that you had appeared on before the whole Tiger King Netflix special aired. Did you expect the insane response that came with that? You know, it's funny because in our world, the animal protection movement Everybody already knew us and knew what we were doing, and we were in the press over 2,000 times every year. But that still didn't mean that anybody outside of our world had heard of us. And so for everybody else, it's like, wow, who's this Carol Baskin? That came out of nowhere. But for us, it wasn't that different, except for the fact that I was now being portrayed as a villain, which had never happened before. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I know because I was definitely one of the people that watched Tiger King whenever it first came out. I mean, we were all just getting locked down. And I think that you probably were one of the people that helped get most Americans through the first part of the pandemic. I've heard so many people say that. And I guess it was just such a diversion for people that it helped keep their minds off of what was going on. I think that's probably true because, you know, whenever there's a big crisis going on and, and that's what it was at the time, you kind of latch on to anything else that is going to help you feel better. And I mean, it kind of has to feel good that you were able to be a part of that, but also you weren't exactly thrilled with the way that they had portrayed everything, correct? <sighs> 
There you go. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was absolutely shocked at the way that I was betrayed because for decades I have been working to end the abuse of big cats by going after these just despicable people who exploit and then often kill these magnificent creatures. And it has never been any producer's um, goal to try and flip the narrative on its head and make the animal abusers the heroes and the person trying to protect the cats the villain. So it was just an utter shock to me that that was what they did with the footage they shot over a five-year period. Oh, wow. I didn't realize that was a five-year period. Wow, yeah. that's a big, a big chunk of life. If you look through the, the uh, film, yeah, <laughs> you'll notice that my weight changes a lot. My hair changes length a lot. It changes color. <laughs> There's just <laughs> so many pieces of it that were put together from a five-year period. So um, was there a certain way that they told you that they were going to be portraying you? Were they saying like, oh, we're going to get this footage for this, and then they just kind of flipped it on you? Yeah. They had told us from the very beginning that what they were working on was the equivalent of Blackfish for big cats. Did you see Blackfish when it came out? I did not. I didn't see that one. It was a film about orcas and dolphins in captivity and how cruel it is. And after that came out, people stopped going to SeaWorld and they had to completely change their model. They quit taking these killer whales from their families in the wild. They quit breeding them for life in concrete pools. And so for five years, we were working on something that we were being told was called stolen wildlife. And it was going to show all of these horrid things that people do to these cubs and to the big cats. And I knew that once people saw this wretched industry for what it is, nobody would ever pay to pet a cub or to see one on display again. Right. And that is not at all what Tiger King turned out to be. Yeah, it seems like they kind of glorified it all. I mean, I do see how they um, kind of made it seem like it was bad to do that stuff, but it, it felt like they were really going into the drama of it all rather than um, trying to make something good out of it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so if you had to choose a second favorite animal, what would that be? You're the second person this week to ask me that. Really? <laughs> and, and I thought I was original. Before that. <laughs> it would be otters. I just love otters. They are so curious. Yeah. And they're adorable, too. <laughs> and less likely to, like, maul you. A scar on my finger from an otter actually oh. <laughs> of course <laughs> so an interesting fact that I had read about you or at least it piqued my interest is that you had a llama lawn care business yes my late husband and I were in real estate for a living we had been investing in real estate since 1984 and we would like to buy larger tracts of land and then we would put a small fence around it and 
llamas are like the easiest keepers when it comes to hoofstock. I mean, you could just string up a rope and they would stay inside that rope. And they clear about eye level. So you could turn them loose on a 40 acre oh. track and they clear the entire thing except for the trees, which makes it just beautiful. So that's what we were doing in um, 1992 when a bobcat came in on a leash and the owner didn't want her anymore and that was what started the sanctuary oh man wow how did you feel when that bobcat came in i mean what made you decide to do the the sanctuary after that like there you had one bobcat that came in that you were trying to help and then was there something that you learned that made you want to to make a sanctuary I had been doing bobcat rehab and release since I was 17, but the only cats you can turn loose are the ones who were born in the wild. And this bobcat had been born in a cage. So when they started bidding on her, I had no expectation of buying a bobcat, but the guy next to me started bidding. And I asked him, I said, you know, when that cat, or I told him rather, when that cat grows up, she is going to tear your face off. Yeah. He said, I'm a taxidermist. I'm just going to club her in the head in the parking lot. And then I had about that same reaction you did. And so she was not going to get killed in the parking lot. And she came home with us. But because she was declawed and she had come from another state and she was born in a cage, she couldn't be turned loose. So she was wretched, as you might imagine, as a pet. They pee all over everything. They attack. the. We had a German shepherd. She just terrorized. She attacked my husband, my daughter. Instead of thinking, wow, this is a really bad idea, my husband said, you know, we need to get her somebody that she's not going to beat the snot out of. And so he started calling around, and this guy said, I'll sell you a kitten, but you got to come here in person. So we drove to Minnesota, and they had 56 bobcats and kittens that were, or bobcats and lynx kittens. And I asked the guy if there was this big of a market for them as pets, and he said, no, whatever we don't sell as pets, we'll just slaughter next year for their fur. And so we came home with 56 bobcats and lynx, and the next year, 28 more, and the next year, 22 more, and then people started calling and saying, would you take my lion, would you take my tiger? And in each one of these cases, I was so naive. I thought, well, I can fix this. I mean, surely (laughs) this can't happen in America. And now it's been 30 years of trying to fix it, but I can see the light at the end of the tunnel, and I'm really encouraged that we will actually pass a ban on private ownership and ban the cub petting, which is what drives almost all of the abuse. I was uh, reading a quote of yours, and it was about how you see into the future. You don't just see the problem that is right in front of you. You take that and you actually see the steps and where you want to be when you end up. Is that how you approach everything that you're let, that is thrown at you? It really is. If I have any superpower, it is that I can see the future. And I can see what it is that I want in the end, and then I can kind of piece backwards. It's almost like playing the movie backwards in my head as to where I need to get to where I am now in order to take those steps to get to where I want to be. I love that. I think that a lot of people should try and do that, and maybe they would, you know, (laughs) have more some uh, success in their endeavors. (laughs) Turns out there's a lot more steps in between sometimes than what I pictured, but... (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure. I'm sure. Um, so whenever you got the call for dancing with the stars, was that something that you got a call for, or is that something that you went after? After Tiger King came out, we were approached by something like 300 media outlets. And I wasn't talking to anybody after the way I'd been betrayed by the producers of Tiger King. 
Yeah. My daughter saw the list and she said, well, you got to do Jimmy Fallon because I love that guy. And you've got to do Dancing with the Stars because I love that show. And I had never seen either of those programs. And so I don't know if you're aware, but the Jimmy Fallon um, request that I got was actually some guys in the UK who taped little bits and pieces of Jimmy Fallon <laughs> to make it me think I was talking to him. And it was hilarious what they did with it, but they got 7 million views talking about the issues. So I was like, all right, well, let me yeah. all dancing with the stars. And then I was thinking, you know, the woman who called me, her name was Dina Katz. And what are the chances after I've just been punked like that, somebody by the name of Katz <laughs> is asking me to dance when, you know, no, I don't dance. No, everybody knows I don't dance. So I contacted her and she said it was legitimate and she um, told me that I could use their platform to talk about the issues. And so for me, that was the most important thing because I felt like Tiger King really did a disservice to big cats by not getting that message out there. And I wanted to capitalize on the buzz and get people talking about saving cats in the wild. So that's what they allowed me to do by coming on the show. But man i i told them i had never danced before and by the third show they figured out they couldn't even teach me the dance <laughs> did you love it though were you um excited were you nervous to go on stage i probably would have pooped my pants going on that stage so i'm not sure how you did it you know it was different this year because they had no live audience and we did rehearsal right before the show. And so I made all my mistakes in the rehearsals and felt perfectly comfortable by the time we went out for the regular show. And when I say perfectly comfortable, I mean, that was dancing as hideously as I danced, but at least I wasn't making like huge mistakes like I made in the rehearsals. So I didn't feel that kind of nervousness. Um, I just, I was not prepared for how hard it is. Those people are athletes, absolute athletes. I, I was, I was dripping blood from my feet from all of the practice and was just, that was the hardest thing I've ever done. And so um, it was, it, despite that, it was really a wonderful opportunity because everybody there was so nice. The whole cast and crew and even the security people and the COVID people, they were awesome. Man, what an opportunity. Would would you do it again? Is there like another, what about like a cooking show or something like that? Is there something that you're like, ooh, it would be really fun to get onto this particular show? Cooking might be the only thing I do worse than dancing. <laughs> <laughs> if they let me talk about the issues, the big cat issues, hey, I'm there. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so one of the big things on Tiger King, obviously, was Joe Exotic and his heinous plan. And uh, I wonder now, like, do you feel a need to kind of look over your shoulder ever? Did that affect you um, longer than, you know, the moment that you found out? People who watch Tiger King seem to think that this was a recent development. Joe had been trying for 20 years practically, well over 15, to get somebody to break my legs, to rape me, to silence me, to kill me. And he tried and tried and tried and could not get anybody to do it for free. And he would get them all riled up saying I was coming after their pets, their goldfish, their domestic dogs and cats, which is just ridiculous. But he did this like every night on his, in his little YouTube channel. And so in 2015 was when I first started getting calls from people saying, you know, Joe Trifocal just tried to pay me to come kill you. And I think you should know. And so we would turn that over to law enforcement each time and they just never did anything about it. 
And so it wasn't until they, law enforcement was actually chasing down a tip on a lemur that they came across this murder for hire plan. And once they stumbled on it themselves, then they took some action on it. And so he was convicted on both hiring Alan Glover for $3,000 and then trying to hire the undercover FBI agent. So as far as, you know, do I feel any safer with him in jail? Maybe a little, but he was one of a dozen of these people that have threatened me over the years. And I think he was the dumbest and the easiest to catch <laughs> out of all of them. So I still have to watch out. Yeah. How did you feel when there was all that um, chit chat about the president possibly pardoning him not too long ago? Were, were you worried about that at all? I was, and I refused to play into the hands of the media because that's all they wanted to talk about for mm -hmm. the entire month of uh, December and the early part of January. And I felt like breathing air into that was not going to end well. Mm -hmm. So I just refused to talk to most of the people about it. But I was concerned because I don't think any other president would ever in the history of presidents or future presidents would ever grant a pardon to somebody like Joe Schreibvogel. But I think that Donald Trump needed something that would divert attention from everything that was going on with him. And that mm -hmm. would have been a great thing to do on his, you know, for him to do to get everybody right. talking about something else. Man, that was crazy. So do you, and just from what I've read about you, um, I love the way that you respond to criticism. Um, you never seem to really lose your cool. You kind of, uh, you, you just present facts like, nope, this is what happened. This is what happened. This is what happened. Um, and do you consider yourself brave? Because to me, you're kind of a badass. Like you're doing dancing with the stars. You're standing up for what you believe in. You don't let a person like Joe Exotic ruin you or, or make you afraid to keep doing what you're doing. Do you feel brave? Are you familiar with the Enneagram? No. It's like a personality test, you know, the Myers-Briggs, those kind of things. And they divide people into like nine different personality types. And I recently, well, recently, it's like 2006, um, discovered that I'm an Enneagram 8. And an Enneagram 8 is a challenger and um, a protector. And so if there is an underdog out there, man, I am out there <laughs> protecting that underdog. And for me, it's those cubs. They cannot speak for themselves. They are being abused and killed, and I'm not gonna let that happen on my watch. So it's not really that I'm brave, I'm just wired that way. And probably everybody that's wired as an eight does the same thing. Yeah. Now I saw that you have a kind of diary series on your YouTube channel. And so you go back and you read these entries from your journals, correct? Right. Do you ever feel, um, is, is it like exciting to read them? Does it bring you down? Is it a mix of emotions? What's it like to go back all those years and kind of revisit everything? It has been weird. So, you know, I've been writing since I was a child and I have, I never like go back and just read my diary. But there were so many people in actually before Tiger King who were saying, you really need to write a book. And I thought, I've already written a book. It's just 7,000 pages and nobody's going to read that book. <laughs> so I thought, you know, what, what will people do? They'll sit and watch a video. So I'll just release a day at a time as a video. And I started doing that, I think, in February. And then Tiger King came out in March. 
but I've continued to do it. And I said, you know, I'm going to do this for as long as I can stand it. And I didn't know what I would go back and discover because like I said, it'd been so long. So there were times that, you know, were really tough and those were hard to relive. And I think it's really important to stay focused on the future because if you dwell on the past, you just bring more of that sadness back into your life. And I don't need that. So I felt like, you know, getting this over and done and out the door once, and then I don't have to keep going back and revisiting. And it turned out to be a good thing because after Tiger King, there were so many people that wanted to rehash Tiger King over and over over again. (laughs) I thought this was a good way for them to see, you know, because everybody in Tiger King was saying, she knows more than she's saying. It's like, you can know everything I knew. I'll let you hear every single bit of it. Right. Do the research themselves. So that's another reason for doing it. So did you write about the night you met your husband? Which one? Your <laughs> your current husband. Yes. <laughs> I think most of my husbands are actually mentioned in the time that I met them. I talked about all of my boyfriends, all of my failed relationships, all of the things that um, I did that was stupid along the way. I'm finally up to about 2007 right now, I think, as far as the ones that are coming out and the ones that I'm recording. And so by 2007, I finally got my act together, I think, and it's not much more to be embarrassed in after that. Um, so my last question for you, and we'll, we'll leave it out on a fun one here. Um, how do you feel about being a Halloween costume? Everybody dressing up as you. <laughs> you know, I thought that that was so funny. And then when I realized, you know, all these people are dressing up and they're doing the flower crown thing, you know? (laughs) And I thought, there's got to be like a market out there for these things. These were really hard to find before Tiger King. (laughs) Now everybody's making them. So I bought a bunch, I made a bunch of them. Um, I thought it was just really, really bizarre, but it was just one more thing that made 2020 a year I don't think I'll ever forget. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people aren't going to forget 2020, but you have much different reasons for it. (laughs) You're right. (laughs) I thought it was funny that um, people were dressing up in couples costumes, and one of them was Joe Exotic, and the other one was you. And I'm like, did you actually get the show? Or (laughs) because... That is the shocking thing to me. So many people, maybe it was the Halloween costumes. I never thought about it until you said that. So many people are like, it's just awful that your husband's in jail. And it's like, it's not my husband. (laughs) I could definitely not ever imagine the two together. No, no. mm -mm. (laughs) Well, Carol, thank you so much for coming on with me. Happy early birthday. I know it's coming up soon. Thank you. Um, Is there anything that you would like to tell people? Is there somewhere you want to direct people to that they can go and and help your organization? I would. Thank you for asking. So the biggest thing I want people to know is that anytime you pay to pet a cub or to see one on display somewhere, you are causing the misery of that cat because they wouldn't do it if people weren't paying to do it. So first off, everybody can stop doing that. But if you live in the U.S., you can actually get your member of Congress to sign on to our federal bill that bans cub petting and phases out private possession. And you can do that at BigCatAct.com. Awesome. Thank you so much, Carol. I really appreciate you coming on with me. Thank you. (laughs) Bye-bye.